so thankful for our worship team and for the words of that song. There is not a, a deeper song, a more demanding song to deliver. It's on my playlist um, just to respond to God in that way. And um, I'm coming off the fresh heels of a funeral of one of my mentors. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that really stinks in life when you start losing your mentors. My mentors are dying. Um, I guess you get to a certain age, that happens. But this mentor two weeks ago was playing basketball and could have whooped me big time. Even though I'm from the state of Indiana, he could have done that. Um, And uh, it reminds us all, and I just wanted to, I felt led to remind you that we live in a world where every single person that we love can be touched by death. And if death touches them, they can be taken from us forever. And I say that, I don't know whether that's a prophetic word for you this morning. It may be that there's no one in the circle of your love who might not be touched by death and taken out of your circle, or it might be you. And the, the impact for me on that partly is that I wanted to say, God, I want to preach a sermon. I really want to do this every week, but that I would be happy enough to offer to you as my very last sermon, because we never know, right? And to pray for you that you might listen to it like it might be the last sermon you get to hear before you just, you might be surprised. We all, there's a group of us, I don't know how many of us, some of us prefer it to languishing in a nursing home, right? But there's a group of us that are just gonna, we're gonna like wake up and say, I didn't, wow. I didn't, I didn't know I was sick. I didn't know my artery walls were weak. I didn't know that oncoming car was gonna, you know, whatever. Uh, and we're looking at a passage that means a lot to me. Uh, it's, uh, I attended a Big Ten University and lived in a dorm where the kegs started rolling down. It was Indiana University in Indiana. The kegs started rolling down the hall on, uh, probably it was Wednesday, but I know it was at least Thursday to get ready for Friday, Saturday to get plastered until, you know, Sunday afternoon when people, and, and I was spared for a lot of that because I really, I was bananas for Jesus, plus my grandma made me swear that I would not drink at all in college, and I loved her, and she would ask me, so I like, it, it, that was amazing, but, but I lived around and loved these people, and so I would have these spiritual discussions, and I remember the passage we're looking at, form the basis of one of them. I would just Xerox, that's what we called it in those days, (laughs) Xerox a bunch of uh, Bible passages right out of the NIV Bible, Uh, and I'd choose a passage, and then I'd say spiritual discussion, room 313, Reedbeck dorm, everyone can come for 10.30 p.m. till whenever, and I mean, sometimes those discussions would go uh, for hours and hours like you do as a a dorm student, and it it was this passage that that jolted the most people because they said, look, that's not what we've experienced of God and of church. We've experienced the opposite. And if what's in this passage was what we experienced about church and God, if this was how we encountered Christ followers, we'd be all in like you appear to be and like you appear to want us to be. But we don't experience that. But wow, this is really magnetic that Jesus is like this. Because our rule was we'd read the passage and you could say whatever you wanted to say, but try to tie it back into the passage. So let's read this incredible account. Uh, I believe it's one of at least two, maybe three times that something like this happened to Jesus. And, And this one I think is unique to Luke's gospel. So it has three characters, Jesus, the Pharisee, and a woman who had a sinful reputation, probably a woman who was, we'd call her a sex worker. And they become the foil of, the, of this passage. The two, the Pharisee and the sinful woman, 
are the two different ways of relating to Jesus. But starting with verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of a woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I think he said that loud, and I think he paused, because I don't think Simon would have said anything in response except Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Pause. Room freezes. Everyone waits. So then Simon's got to do something, so he says, and he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as we talk about discipleship, this passage is really about the key marker of discipleship, and that is love for Jesus. If we get everything else, all the ingredients of what a discipled life looks like, and it does not produce hearts that are passionately loving Jesus, passionately, publicly loving Jesus, then we have failed. You get the, the, the true mark of discipleship, the, the most important test, and this is the first point, the test of discipleship, of spiritual maturity, of understanding the Bible, of being good theologians, if you're interested in that, <laughs> is the output of your love to Jesus. That's the test. If that isn't there, then you've got to question the claim. This is the test, love for Jesus. And you have two characters here relating to Jesus. I don't like to think of this as three characters. I think of it as two because Jesus transcends them all. And there's two different ways of relating to him. And in this, there's some detail about the Pharisees. Now, it's kind of surprising that a Pharisee would invite Jesus to a banquet. Look, this is impressive. They were generally the enemies. They were, uh, there was no love lost in their circle for Jesus. And he invites him to a banquet. So we got to give him some credit. He's having a banquet. He's a, but it shows this. It's possible to be very interested in Jesus, to even do some things to honor Jesus, to even put yourself near Jesus, and yet to have an extremely bad defect in your whole relationship with Jesus. 
And, and, and that's what's going on here. So, and the Holy Spirit did not go into such detail about the Pharisees in the Bible so that we could just understand out of curiosity a group unique to the first century. <laughs> Phariseeism is a poisonous weed that grows in the garden, not of loosely interested people about Jesus. It, it doesn't, Phariseeism is not really at home in churches that kind of go along to get along in lockstep permission with whatever the world says. There's plenty of those. Phariseeism doesn't usually take hold in them. It's not as, it's not as at home in that soil as it is in churches and believers that actually care about what God says in his word. It's, it's really the occupational hazard, you might say, of the quote, orthodox. In other words, we care about what scripture says. And here's the reality. I've been a Christian some 36 years. There's a little Pharisee still hiding out in my heart. Uh, and, and I don't major in Phariseeism because I, I, I know it, but, but occasionally I'll write a paper or turn in a course work uh, as an expression of Phariseeism. In other words, there's an occasional Pharisaical smelling performance in my heart that breaks out in a conversation or, or, or an evaluation and, and this is the problem with Phariseeism. It's hidden, it's small. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because like yeast, you can't really see it, whether it's been in the bread. You could, you could forget to add the yeast and that the dough looks the same. So he says, beware, because if it's there, it will take over. It's a problem with Phariseeism. It's the problem with cultural Christianity is that if you allow it to be smuggled into your church, it will take over and it will want to get rid of the real thing. And, and, and that's why it's, it's exposed here. And, and, and it has to be overturned. You know, I, I had the privilege of seeing both of my parents. They were very churched. And I was, I was raised in a church, very involved. I mean, like I, I was a church organist at a young age. I memorized all the words to all the hymns. And that was awesome. But both my parents were, were elders, pillars. They helped make that church run. They gave themselves to it in their, the little community. But I was converted first at around 16 or 17. They were serving in those roles. And my dad would say that he was already a believer, but he had, he had kind of jettisoned his relationship with Jesus and let it just kind of go underground for his career and stuff. My mom would say she was converted through the ministry of Bible Study Fellowship. Great organization. My dad would say he returned to a faith that was anemic, but they've been elders for years. I grew up with them as elders in this church, and they were pillars in the church, but when they really came to an awakened faith in Christ, and that, that involved them actually changing churches, going to one that was founded on the scriptures and, and more Christ-filled, the thing that I saw most change about them was their, I remember growing up, and after the service, we kind of did a review of the worship service a review of the sermon. I mean, we had roast beef and roast pastor. I don't know why I got into this field. <laughs> but it wasn't just, it, it usually wasn't anything even that substantive, but I remember just like, I remember a discussion over how somebody forgot to clean the brass choir rail. That's a big offense. God really hates it when the church doesn't have a clean brass fire rail. Um, and after they came to know Christ and love Christ and were going to worship even more and involved said, that kind of critical spirit, it, it went away. It just was nowhere to be found in them. And there was just as much to be criticized. And, and I tell you that because I have sat with 
with at least one teenager who comes to mind who was rejecting the faith and was sullen about Christianity, tell me this, mom and dad dragged me to come to worship and so that's why I'm here. I'm not interested at all. I'm mad that they make me. But what really ticks me off is they complain more about this church and criticize it up and down more than I do and they're supposed to love it. And, and, and that is the heart of a Pharisee emerging in good people. I can relate to that. We gotta expel it. And, and so this Pharisee's there and, and he is not even giving Jesus, we're gonna see the, the common courtesy that was given to guests uh, to make them comfortable. And so this woman steps in and does and this Pharisee is, is criticizing her and criticizing Jesus, if he were really a prophet, if he knew who and what sort of woman this is, she's a sinner. The Pharisees criticizing the one that is functioning and firing on the right cylinders. And so this is, this is unusual. This Pharisee even has Jesus there, but he's got this huge defect. But then the very fact that this woman is there is incredible. She's crashing this party. And she really doesn't belong there, and she probably would have been cast out but you know if you crash a wedding and you're clinging to the to the groom or the bride nobody no usher is going to say you got to leave right (laughs) so her ticket in is Jesus she's clinging to him and it's just amazing there's a woman in the room first of all not because of what the bible says but the culture in that day rabbis which Jesus would have been regarded at least as a rabbi did not even speak to women remember the woman at the well in John 4 disciples were even amazed what are you doing talking to a woman she was amazed But Jesus didn't obey those cultural rules. So this woman's presence there, I mean, I love, like, in in the midst of our world where um, there's so much, not just abuse, but condescension toward women, and the the playing field is is not equal, if you look by any measure toward women. 2,000 years ago, there was somebody who walked this earth who treated women impeccably, and his name was Jesus. And, And you can search the New Testament, and you will not find any evidence that Jesus ever treated women any differently than he treated men. Women were not too precious and dainty to be entrusted with real serious ministry. Uh, Women didn't receive any free passes or exempt. He treated them equally, intellectually, equally gifted. Women were not too sweet or too weak for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus would step in and berate men who judged women. I mean, he's he's doing that in this parable. I mean, the Pharisees judging this woman and Jesus in his heart, and Jesus rebukes him publicly and forcibly. Jesus rebuked the men who wanted to keep the woman who came to him with the, with the issue of blood, right? <laughs> and the first person Jesus spoke to after the resurrection to entrust with the good news was not Peter or James or John. It was Mary Magdalene. And, and you find a little later in Luke, Jesus is going to call a woman daughter of Abraham. That had never been done. That must have sent a shockwave through the room to, for the first time, this phrase, people had always heard sons of Abraham, sons of Abraham, never daughters. But at the sound of Jesus' words, daughter of Abraham, he gave this woman a place to stand right next to the sons, especially the ones who were snarling at her with their sense of ownership and exclusivity over it all. And I just want to say that because it, it's worth noting, and, the, and, and this is why women were the last ones at the cross, I think. It's why around the globe, women flock to Jesus because there's no other religious founder or person who treats women in this way. There's, there hasn't been one like it. There, there has never been another. Here's Jesus. He never nagged at women. He never flattered or coaxed or patronized them. He never made up any jokes about them. He never treated them as, as like, the women, God help us, 
Or, or, oh, those ladies, God bless them. Bless their hearts. Always baking us cookies, watching the little ones. He didn't do that. He didn't cubbyhole them. He rebuked them severely. He challenged them. He entrusted them. And, if, if, and, and just for evidence, read Luke 8, 1 through 3, and you'll see that women who had means were the key ones who contributed to Jesus' ministry with money that they had. They, they were key and essential uh, on his, in the leadership and the going forth of the gospel. And you will not find a single sermon, parable, or snippet in Jesus' uh, words in the Bible uh, that would ever suggest that there was anything deficient or, like, quote, funny about the way women are wired. None of that. None of that. And so she's there. And all, all that's kind of background because you have these, these two individuals around Jesus, but here I'm ready for my first point. And that really is, again, love is a litmus test of discipleship, love to Jesus, but love is where the authority of ministry should come from. Love for Jesus is where the authority of ministry should come from. Intimacy with Jesus, ministering out of the overflow. And, and what I mean by that is, is there can be human authority and offices in the church. And I always think we, we have to respect those, just like offices in the, the civil sphere. You have to ex- respect the office as well as the office holder. But in terms of the church, if there's any power... What I mean by that, if there's any positive power going forth from the person who holds that office, it's got to flow, be the overflow out of love and intimacy with Jesus. He said so. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean you can't have church. It doesn't mean you can't build a big building. It doesn't mean that you can't do a lot of the things that we're seeking to do. We can do all of that apart from Jesus, but we cannot manifest ministry, power, and authority if it isn't born out of the overflow of loving him. So you guys are fast students, some of you ameners, but just in case somebody's dragging, I want to give you an Old Testament illustration. <laughs> um, in the Old Testament, you had King Saul. And he had the office of authority as the king. He was basically, as I read it, it's like he was tall and had broad shoulders and was good looking. And so the people you know, from a good family background, so the people wanted to put him in, you know. It's like somebody said, hey, they're a good businessman. Let's make them a leader in the church. You know, so they put in, but he didn't have a heart of love. David, this, you know, 16-year-old who went out with his harp and lyre, very musical, and, and would write love songs to Jesus while he was shepherding the sheep. He was functionally, functioning out of love and intimacy for God. He had more royal kingly authority, but he didn't have the office. And so when Saul decided he needed to kill him, like I said, cultural Christianity will always try to kill real Christianity. So Saul had to kill David, right? So he's chasing him and David gets him cornered and David could have had him cut down or even humiliated him and David won't do it. Uh, He won't do it. And so, so here's what I say. So Saul was a placeholder king and David was the real king even before he was the king, but he waited on God. But he was exerting more real spiritual victories for the people of God without being king than Saul was by being king. So let me apply that to me, to the pastors, to the staff, to the leaders, to the ministry leaders. Leaders have a responsibility that the ministry they, they bring about ministers out of intimacy with Jesus. The influence we have can lock a church down and, and, and many times, the real functional leaders of a church are not its pastors or staff or elders, sadly, uh, or, or people who are exercising leadership roles, but the real leaders are outside of that 
who have a deep intimacy with Jesus and they actually have ministerial authority that's flowing out like the vine and the branches and those who are in those places are placeholders. If not obstructions, they eventually will be obstructions. And so love for Jesus is the key thing. I mean, that's, ultimately, that is, boiled down our membership questions, what it means to actually say, I'm part of covenant. It's just this question, do you love Jesus? And, 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 and why? Not loving him as just like an example, more like passionate love for Jesus. Do you have that? We can ask you all kinds of other things to basically try to detect, do you understand the gospel? I mean, I'll, if you're being interviewed, I'll tell you like what, what some of those questions are. Basically is if you were to die tonight, would you know for certain you're going to see God in heaven? If he were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And if you begin to answer that question, well, because I, da, 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 then you've got to go to remedial school. You do not understand if you answer that with I, you don't understand grace and all that. But, but here's the problem. You can understand salvation by grace. You can understand justification. You can give me a theological treatise on justification and not have love for Jesus. You can. And I know this because it's very easy to produce people who understand the flow of doctrine. But it's very hard, to, in fact, it's impossible to produce someone whose life has been totally wrecked in a glorious way and who is astonished and amazed that Jesus loves them. <laughs> and it's the second that is really the mark of the Holy Spirit. I'll say this for ordination. When I was ordained as a pastor, I was examining Greek and Hebrew and church history and philosophy and uh, church polity uh, in, in all kinds of areas and, and up and down and, and all around. I don't remember anybody asking me if I love Jesus. They asked me if I was saved and I could give them a testimony, but that's a different thing. That's not necessarily the same. And the power of ministry, and you know it. You know, when someone is ministering either in the word or serving, you know when that it's out of the overflow of Jesus. You can sense it. Somebody who has an average voice has incredible impact when it's coming out of the overflow of love for Jesus. And someone who has been wonderfully vocally trained, but doesn't minister out of that. It's just like, that was pretty, but don't even remember it. And, and, and so it's, this, is, this is so important for ordination, for leadership. But it's also important, the final judgment, I think the final judgment is simply going to be, you love Jesus, you're in. It's, 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 it's a question you can't really lie about. It's what Jesus asked Peter, right? He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? before he would entrust Peter to feed my sheep. Do you love me? And, and, and here's what, I, I have a sleep disorder, so I'm up a lot, and I try to make it in spiritual service. It's sometimes not fun. <laughs> but, but I was up the other night, and it's like two verses were really spilling over into my heart. The, the first one is Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Central verse to confidence about the word of God that those, and it helps me see how to see our community. I see our community as those who are being held back by the gates of hell. Satan has them captive through lies, through deception, through all kinds of things. And the gospel is so powerful and our savior is so sovereign that those walls and those gates, gates are where it's reinforced the most, right? They are gonna come crashing down. It is a sovereign, powerful savior, right? But then into the mind comes another verse that looks like a contradiction and a completely different view of Jesus. And it's not the gate crasher, gates of hell shall come crashing down Jesus. It's the Jesus who is so weak 
and who doesn't even have enough strength to get himself inside a church. It's from the book of Revelation chapter 3. And it's addressed to Christians, not non-Christians. And Jesus says to a church, it's a church at Laodicea, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. But he's like, I can't get in. Those two verses, they seem like such a contradiction. He'll barrel the wall down and break through the, the, the barrier for someone who's behind the gates of hell. And yet, inside, the, he can't get into this church. So I think the question is like, what kind of serious sin is so strong that it's stronger than Jesus? Was this a church that was, had committed immorality? You know, I grew up in a church, um, I didn't know this as a kid, but like the choir director and the organist, they were regularly like swapping wives and husbands. Like there were all kinds of sexual shenanigans and stuff going on. That, that's bad. If that's endorsed in leadership, man, that should block the spirit. Um, I, I've known other churches that basically departed from the real worship of God, uh, denied the deity of Jesus, false teaching, false morality. Would it, was that true of this church? No, none of that was true. So what kind of horrible, serious, heinous sin would put Jesus, would act like kryptonite to Superman on Jesus where he's so weak, this one who can crash the gates actually is begging to get in. Poor, pitiful, wimpy Jesus. I mean, I can break into a church by force of personality or, 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 or something, break in, make an impact. And he's saying he can't. What is it? What's this horrible sin? And it's that their love was neither hot or cold. It was lukewarm love for Jesus. And I mean, I, I look at that. Um, how, 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 does that how does that get there? And I, and I think one thing we see from this is Jesus is, he's not a bully. And so once you come to know him, there's an aspect of which before we come to know him, he'll like tear down the walls. After we come to know him, he's not a bully. And, and so I, I, I think of my wife, who I adore and have great fellowship, and we wake up in the morning, and um, she's talking Bible to me and theology and whatever, and, and it, what a gift. And, but I know this, like, if, if I treat her rude, so, and, and sadly, I know this from experience, like, I, so she's talking, she's sharing her heart, she's whatever, and I'm, like, scrolling the news, answering an email, oh, what, hun? Uh, you know, and, and she's ministering away out, out of fullness. And if, if I keep that up, that jerky behavior, what a jerk. Your wife is talking to you and, and you have an opportunity and you're just doing these strings and you're scrolling through whether it's news feeds or emails or whatever. What a jerk. I would never want to listen to someone preach who behaved that jerky way. But that's me. <laughs> and my wife quits talking to me because she has some self-respect and you're not going to just keep sharing your heart to somebody who treats you like a yapping chihuahua and not even listening to it, so she just shuts down. Then I have to go pursue her and apologize. But, but that's, that's a reality, and I want to say that Jesus has some self-respect. He's not going to push intimacy on us. Um, he respects if we're going to ignore him, he departs. He's so willing, though, and he loves to forgive people who've treated him rudely. And he loves to welcome us back. Fortunately, my wife does too. But he, he loves to, to bring that, but he, but he won't force intimacy on us. And, 
And I believe heart intimacy is, is, is the deepest thing. It is the most attractive thing. It is the most, it is the most important thing. And it is, there's a gravitational pull against it. And I think it happens uh, in so many different ways. I was a very young pastor. I was too young. I think of the people who called me to be their pastor in the Washington, D.C. area. And I'm like, if I were you, I'd have never called me just by the virtue I was too young. I would have age discriminated against myself. So I love those people. They were incredible. Um, but I remember I was going to a big grand, I called it the Grand Poobah Convention of the denomination I was in. Um, you know, and, and I was there overhearing how they functioned at this Grand Poobah Convention. I was all in. I was wanting their approval and all this stuff. And I remember a discussion because they were nominating people to big committees. And somebody nominated a man who was known uh, as an excellent Bible teacher and had been involved in missions and places. And, and uh, he was known as what you call an experientialist. Because whenever he talked, he just like, his theology turned into emotion and connection. And people talked about his heart water. He just was always <laughs> weeping with joy and affection. And he's called an experientialist. And I remember hearing a more experienced person who was near me, who was an more, even more well-known person in that little community, saying, we can't allow someone who's an experientialist to be put in charge of one of our committees. And I remember thinking, oh my. How, how can that be, folks? You know, love for Christ will sometimes marginalize you. Passionate, expressed love for Christ. And love for Christ has to be expressed. That's what we see in this woman, right? That's what we see. If love is real, it's going to be expressed. It's going to become visible. If there's a word I pray that people would use to describe Covenant Church, it would be the word irrepressible. We have an irrepressible love for Jesus. We just can't help it. Sometimes we break out of the polite conventional boundaries because we just can't help ourselves. We have to tell people about Jesus. I, I, I know we're, we're praying at the Rotary Convention and we're supposed to, but I, we just, I just had to talk about Jesus a couple, a little bit more than I was supposed to. We, we just, we're irrepressible. That's what this woman was. And yet when that happens, sometimes this, this can marginalize people in the church. A few years ago, I was discussing a, a really well-known worship song with a worship leader. And I mean, um, this worship song was on my worship playlist. I've been greatly blessed by it. It was, it was intense. It was simple. It, it was speaking of a real like face-to-face -face intimacy with Jesus. And using some of the analogy of like dancing with Jesus, dance with me. Radically focused on eye-to-eye -eye intimacy with Jesus. And I remember saying to the worship consultant talking about this song, and, and the worship consultant said to me something along these lines. He says, yeah, he says, you know, I know though from churches, especially to be honest, like churches in our demographic, there's like this kind of song is, it's often criticized by, by the more theologically astute leaders um, who like, are more geared for words and such. And so you have, you have, have to be careful using this song. And, and I remember the worship leader I was with, just, just the glint of a tear in his eye <laughs> and saying that he, he just wept for believers who wouldn't be able to enter in that kind of intimate experience. And friends, we're, we're so shaped to be rationalists. And, but how can we be leaders who are in a love relationship with Jesus and we can't get on board with intimacy? <laughs> we, we love glorying in, in detached intellectual concepts to the point of cynicism about experience. And we've, we so easily will trade um, uh, um, 
the mannequin of some system or machinery for a relationship with a real live God. And, and so we can be so critical. And it's, it's, it's not just in that vein. I, I attended a great church when I was in seminary by a profound leader. A lot of you would know and read his books. And, and we sang virtually everything we sung out of, the, out of the Trinity hymnal. And there was a zealous seminary student who was on fire for Orthodox doctrine. And they had taken, fortunately it was a pencil, but they had gone through correcting the words to these hymns because they used analogies that went a little overboard when it came to experience, at least he thought. <laughs> And I thought, wow, what a monumental waste of time. Um, and, 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 and we used to say, like, a, you know, the pastor himself was not too pleased because some of his favorite hymns got, quote, corrected. Because we, we didn't want to go overboard with intimacy and love for Jesus. You just think about it say, are there any restaurants that you don't go to because the food tastes too good? I, I was I was in another church, a planning meeting, and I don't think this characterizes everything that goes on in this church by any means. But but one of the person in leadership said to me, they said, "We like to keep the worship culture and temperature in our church cool because we don't want to offend the non-believers that we're reaching." And they were reaching a lot of non-believers. We keep it cool. I was like, I thought worship was about what he wanted. <laughs> We've seen so many times people who don't know Christ come in and when they see authentic, it has to be authentic. It can't be whomping up the emotions. It can't be like someone who's flat about God and we're going to talk about what makes it genuine but, and how you can tell. But, but seen so many people who are jolted by saying, they have something I don't have. I want to have that joy. I want to have that love. I want to have that response. We keep the worship temperatures cool. That's exactly what every young and married man says who's looking for a wife. They say, I want to find a wife whose affectionate temperature for me is cool. Just maybe a little above frigid, but frigid is what I'm looking for. Uh, when it comes to a bride, right? Isn't that men, right? That's what we were saying when we were single in our late teens and 20s. I want to find a frigid woman to be my bride. <laughs> hey, even old men don't want that. And, and, and so how can that be? How can that be? You know, love for Jesus, it's going to express itself, and, and he wants it. I, I, I hear a lot of times people say, I don't feel God. And again, he's not a bully. So, so maybe you need a hearing aid. <laughs> I don't hear God. I don't feel God. Um. I hear people say, well, you know, it says the one who's forgiven much loves much. Well, I, I just, I don't really feel my sins. Have you asked the Holy Spirit to point them out to you? Because there's plenty of them. You've got plenty of them. I've got plenty of them. And, 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 and we have to answer back. I mean, our, our first duty is to minister out of that overflow. I, I've, I've said it so many times. I mean, it's been central. It's a central passion to me since I, it, it's like worship and ministering out of the overflow of Jesus is central to who we are. And so I've said over and over again to our staff, our staff, we're paid to serve you. We're paid to be good. The most important thing you can do is if you volunteer at one, you worship at another, right? Because that is the most important thing that we do. And look, I'm telling you, even, even though we're paid to be good, some we have trouble getting there. I'm going to have to start taking attendance. I'm going to start advocating for docking pay of our staff. If you see some of them going hungry because they're not in worship, too busy serving, then don't feed them. 
Let them get hungry so they come back to the place of worship. We're going to play this tape in staff and see how popular it is. But and it, it is born out of challenges and things that happen, but it's like, but, but our worship, I mean, we need to be with our families. We need to be under the word. We need to be worshiping. When I'm not preaching, I'm here worshiping. That's one of the most important things I do because I need that. And, and, and we've got to be in that same place. And so we, we've got to make ourselves available. Sometimes we say, I have no appetite. Something's wrong with my heart. Well, yeah, that's a funny complaint. You know, have you ever not had an appetite? Have you ever had maybe a child who says they have no appetite and they complain when you've, you're preparing a dinner together and you say, that's a funny complaint from someone who snacked all afternoon, didn't exercise, sat in a chair, um, has a Snickers bar on his breath and, and, and evidence that M&Ms do in fact melt in your hands in their hands and you have no appetite. That can happen to us spiritually. Don't let yourself off the hook. If you can, if you can scroll for hours or minutes even through stupid web pages and you can stir yourself to anger or self-righteousness about other issues or you can get excited about the exploits of your sports team or frustrated but you haven't had a ripple of disturbance in your spiritual EKG caused by love of Jesus then you've flatlined and there's, there's something on us and and here I want to say, so, so experience of Jesus expressed, experiential love for Jesus expressed, that, that must happen. It's a litmus test. It must come out of us. Again, it's like that soccer ball that you try to hold under a swimming pool. If it's irrepressible. How do you know it's real? I mean, if I'm saying this is the essence, it's so important. One thing is that every Christian leader in Christian history, they've, they've written about this in their journals. But, but you, the litmus test for whether experience is real is, is evidenced and counterbalanced not by doctrinal fidelity because doctrine is not a counterbalance to experience. That's a horrible error. Doctrine is the fuel and friend of experience. So what's the litmus test? So doctrine's not, it's not to be played off of each other. Our, our problem is we need to be experiencing. <laughs> we're, we're educated beyond our experience. We need to ask God to do in our souls what we understand um, what's the litmus test for whether experience is real or not? It's obedience. It's not your doctrinal knowledge. I learned that to the point of disillusionment. <laughs> Look, I, I got A's in all my systematic theology courses. So I'm not denigrating sound doctrine. It's beautiful. I love it. It's so beautiful and it's so attractive. You can actually enjoy studying it without your heart being engaged in it. And you can start to compliment yourself on spiritual progress that actually is not measured by your doctrinal understanding, but is measured by your obedience. Obedience is the measurement of whether experience is bogus. So somebody who's weeping, crying, um, expressive about Jesus, but they're completely betraying him in key central areas of obedience, then something's bogus there. That's not right. But, and and so again, it's, it's, it's so important. You know, if you've, you've ever, and, and I think about our church building, building this big, beautiful building. Have you ever been to someone's great big house and it just feels cold, impersonal, <laughs> intimidatingly fine and nice, but not that they literally have the plastic on the couches and the, and the, and the you know, window shades, but, it's, but it's, it just feels that off-putting. And then you go to a house that's just simple, but there's magnetism and warmth there. <laughs> You know, I see that in the midst of building this church, and, and it's, you, we have to fight that gravitational pull. 
I, I want to just say, if you're watching on a live stream today, I hope you're traveling or sick. Because live stream is not a substitute for being here. <laughs> it's not the same. It's really not. I, I, uh, even staff, I say that. It's not the same to worship down in the cafe. All due respect for being in the cafe. I know some of you had good reasons to be down there. But it's, it's not the same kind of impact. It's not the same kind of witness as, as being together in this room. Christianity is a, it's, it's a corporate participation together. And there's something manifested of the Holy Spirit. Um, Psalm 87 says, God loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. And what he's saying, he loves it when his people come together more than he loves it if everybody worshiped alone in their homes. So, so live stream's not, it, it, it doesn't replace it. <laughs> And, and here's the problem. We, the occupational hazard of, of religious people, of church people, is being underwhelmed with Jesus. It's being underwhelmed with Jesus. So how do we feel it? Well, Jesus tells this parable. Which one is more grateful for a bill you can't pay? If you can't pay your Netflix subscription or if you can't pay your mortgage and they're going to foreclose. And somebody says, I've paid for your foreclosure. I've paid not just your outstanding debt. I've paid your whole mortgage off or I've paid your Netflix bill. Which one's more? It's not, it's not rocket science here. And Simon hesitates. He says, well, I suppose. He doesn't want to be trapped by this, right? But Jesus says here, the punchline is those who've been forgiven much love much. And this woman loves much. It should encourage us. She wasn't eminent. She was a moral failure. She, Jesus says her sins were many. So she definitely had them. He's not just going along. He's not like a morally permissive whatever whatever, just live it, I'm on a knock, even acknowledge. No, she has some serious sin. So then he says those who've been, but he doesn't say those who've been sin, who sin a lot, love much, but he says those who've been forgiven much. So it's her esteem of forgiveness. And Phariseeism was rigged to make Pharisee feel like it didn't cost God anything to love them. And so they measure themselves against other people and, and they had no sense that it was an amazing thing that they could be forgiven. You know, in fact, Phariseeism and doing things makes you think, well, God's pretty fortunate to have me on his team. It's really, you know, I'm here twice a month. Wow. God is fortunate. But, but, but when you're astounded and absolutely undone, and so what Jesus is saying, those who've been forgiven much, in other words, those who understand the greatness of God, those who understand the magnitude of the cross, that it took a bloodstained cross and a Savior to go all that distance so that we could be ransomed, that the holiness of God is real. And the immensity of God is great. And so forgiveness is great. And so Jesus is saying that if you want to know where to get this kind of affection, the size of the door through which, that it took for salvation to come into you is the same size of the door that you will express love to God. He's, he's saying the same, it's the same size. So if forgiveness is great and the gospel is great and what God has done to forgive you is great, then your responsiveness, your affection to him, it's going to break out. It's going to know no bounds. It's going to take you into places you didn't even know you could go in your experience, in your emotion, in your passion, and yes, even in your obedience. So don't settle. And don't settle now. Because no matter what the depth of your communion, fellowship, and intimacy within, with Jesus is now, it's going to be infinitely trumped by what you were going to experience when we see him face to face. The Bible says we do not see him now, but we believe in him and we greatly rejoice. And then, then Peter says, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's going to take us beyond that. And imagine on that day when we're invited that it's going to be because, and we're going to glory, the lamb on the throne is going to have, he's going to have the only wounds in heaven to remind us of the cost, what it costs so that we can be amazed and we can revel and we can delight in that. 
So this intimate, passionate love for Jesus is the test of discipleship. It must be expressed. It can't be suppressed. And the fuel for it is to esteem how greatly the cost of the love of God that's come to us is. I'm going to ask our band to come up, but I want to just lead us in prayer and just a time to respond to God out of this. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we, we come to you forgiven at infinite cost. God, break into our spirits. Lord, forgive us where we've been underwhelmed. Lord, stir our affections under the flame and the fire of what you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that this closing of this service would be an expression of It would be our own alabaster jars broken open and poured out at the feet of Jesus in response to his response to his active love. And may it cause us to be that place that is so passionate for you, Lord, that Pharisees are offended right into faith. (laughs) Lord, and the people who are so broken that they wouldn't think they could come into this place will be drawn in like magnets. And we'll see you do great and wondrous things. Do it in our hearts individually. Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Come now. Come in a unique and personal way. Minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.